So I'm going to ask you a question. So what if I told you, as a good Christian, now you must wear white all the time? I mean, white is the color of purity, right? Of course we should. Why not? I can make a really good case for why we should only wear white. We should show that we are washed with the blood of Christ and we are spotless like him. What if I told you that as a good Christian, you should only wear flip-flops? Because that's what, what Jesus wore. Maybe a few amens in this congregation. But you, you would hear those things and say, well, I don't really think that that's right, but I don't necessarily know why. This morning, I want to talk a little bit before we get into our sermon about legalism. This is the first time we see it in John, but it, it's something we see all around us. And those two examples might seem ridiculous. But there are many examples in the modern church today and throughout history where people have added additional burdens to the word of God and told you to do things that scripture does not prescribe and makes you seem like less of a Christian for doing it. Anyone ever been there? Legalism takes many shapes and sizes. Legalism usually starts with reasonable ideas. Of course, we want to be more like Jesus. Of course, we want to keep our bodies in control and, and we want to be presentable in front of the world. But typically what happens is the focus becomes more external and it gets away from the grace of the Lord and is mostly concerned with the judgments of man and not the judgments of God. And legalism can distract and can shackle the people of God and can miss the redemptive work that he's doing all around us. Before I get into this little introduction, I want to be honest. I think we can all agree that we're tempted toward legalism. We're all tempted for people to be shaped in our image and what it means in our minds to be a Christian and fit people into our little box. Most people who are legalistic would never admit that they are. And so I want to talk a little bit about what to watch out for, what marks define legalism and what Jesus had to say about it. Because Jesus talked about it all the time. He may not have used those words, but you may be familiar with Jesus talking about the letter of the law versus the spirit of the law. And the Pharisees who tithed on all of their spices, yet missed the weightier measures of the law. He also told them that they were clean on the outside. They washed the outside of the cup, but the inside of the cup was filthy. It was dead. He also told them that you, the lawyers and the scribes, you place these burdens on people that you yourself will not even bear. Jesus warned against it then and it still continues now. And what it really can be measured as is anytime you see the expectations of man put either on equal ground with the expectations of God or above the expectations of God. When the judgments of man are placed above God's word or they're placed on equal footing with God's word, we're in very dangerous ground. There are many people calling themselves Christians commanding things that scripture does not command. And they're making more about following Jesus, about obeying laws and doing things that scripture does not require. We sang earlier that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. But many people don't act like it. Many people don't live like it. Many people live like they have to fulfill the law themselves or they have to tell others to fulfill the law because Jesus, what Jesus did is not enough. Because ultimately, when you add something to the word of God, you're saying what Jesus did is not enough. Now, I don't want to minimize good works. We all know that there will be fruits of the spirit and we are called to good works out of our salvation. But there is a big difference when we say that our good works lead to our salvation. 
And we mentioned in our, in our time of prayer before service this morning, had several conversations this week about the local church. In Sanford, there's a lot of churches, and we prayed for the churches in Sanford this morning. But there's a lot of different gospels being preached in Sanford. There's a lot of, of churches who are lifting up things that are not biblical. I'm going to tell you two things, and I'm not going to name names, and for the sake of the body of Christ, I will not. One will tell you that it is biblical and it is commanded that no one should smile in church. Commanded. Legalistic. On the other end, one will tell you that we want to make church so fun that no one will ever want to go to hell. So one side you've got extreme legalism. One side you've got extreme antinomianism, which means no law. But both are essentially legalism. Both are essentially saying our idea of what is right is more important than what Scripture says. Those things seem ridiculous. They are being proclaimed from the pulpits in our city. And I say this not to condemn them, and uh, it should be condemned, but I say this to challenge us. That when we look at this text in John this morning, that we look and marvel at the power of God to redeem and save people and not worry about our idea of what it means to be moral because that's what the Jews did. Legalism is very dangerous. I'm going to tell you a few examples. You can't make this stuff up. As someone who visited here one time, uh, he pulled me aside and proceeded to rebuke me because we clapped in, in church. We've also had those who have left the church because we dare even mention money. Scripture teaches on giving, so we're going to teach on giving. I was told this, I wasn't here, but there was almost a church split over the color of the carpet. Many people left because they chose this. I don't know if I blame them, but it... it, (laughs) Just kidding. But those things are real, and they happen all the time. Because many times Christianity is made about, this is what my pet project is, and this is what I want it to be, so everyone else must feel as excited about this thing as I am. And we'll get to Jesus eventually, but we've got to touch on my stuff first. This is the same in Jesus' day. And this is the same thing that Jesus came against. These people who added all these extra burdens and made it so difficult for people to come to the Lord because they couldn't unless they went from A to Z on all of their legal requirements. W.E. Vine, a commentator on the book of John, says that Jews approach their religious observances with punctilious exactitude. We have lost our vocabulary. I love that. (laughs) Punctilious exactitude. You don't know what that means, but you know what that means. They were so committed to their legalistic way of, of, of living that they had it down to the letter. It was so exact. It was so punctuated. And they were so blind to the Savior who was standing right in front of them. And this will be a continued theme in the book of John. The letter of man's law versus the spirit of life. That comes through Christ. So open your Bibles, if you would, with me to John chapter 5. So Jesus has left Samaria, came into Galilee. He healed the official son. We saw that last week. And now we're going to see what happens after this. John is a great storyteller. He kind of leads us, lets us know what's happening and when, and kind of gives us Jesus's movements. So here we are in John chapter 5, verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and the Jews went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, in Aramaic, called Bethesda, which has five rooted colonnades, 
And in these lay a multitude of invalids, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. One man who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? But the sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool where the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said that to you? Take up your bed and walk. Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said, see, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and he told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered him, my father is working until now and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father making himself equal with God. Let's pray. Lord, may the words that offended the Jews be a rejoicing cry for us that you are equal, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, equal in purpose, equal in essence, distinct in person, that we can celebrate the work of the Father from The plan of the Father from all ages carried out by the Son and the power of the Spirit. That we can rejoice that you are bringing the dead to life, making the broken whole. That we can rejoice that you are still working and redemption is not done. That you're still calling the lost to yourself. Lord, let us be people who praise you for who you are and what you have done and what you are doing. Let us lift up our hearts and our voices to proclaim the wondrous mystery that God took on flesh to save helpless sinners. And just pray this morning that your spirit would teach us, guide us, would convict us if needed. And as we walk, we walk by your grace, according to the truth of scripture and love so that the world will see That we were once blind and now we see. We were once dead and now we're alive. We were were once as crippled and as helpless as this man here, but now we walk because of Jesus. Let's pray you calm our hearts, calm our minds, and that your word may teach us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I'm going to touch on a few details. Uh, We're going to look at some some major themes here. There's a lot of details, and obviously we can't walk through all of the historical details, but there's a few things I want to bring to your attention. Starting in verse 1, after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and the Jews went up to Jerusalem. There's going to be a lot of traveling in the book of John. And it was was, was quite frequent that the Jews worshipped in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And every time there was an opportunity to worship, because Jesus was a good Jew, he would go. And his disciples would most likely go with him. 
And so now, uh, here's some kind of directional information here. And this is still debated by, by scholars exactly where this pool existed and where this, this gate was. We have an idea, but it's not worth covering here. Um, so in verse 2, we're just going to talk about it, or we're just going to read it and go through it. So there is in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, a pool, in Aramaic, called uh, Bethsaida, which has five uh, roofed colonnades. And in these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. This is the first thing we need to address. Some of you who are very detail-oriented, and you're reading in the ESV, saying, wait a second. I'm not that great at math, but I know that after three comes four and then five. Anyone see that? Anyone see there's no verse four there? No one, no one, no one got this? So I want to I want to address this this real quick um, because I think this this is helpful because this is going to come up a lot uh, not a lot several times in in John uh, there's a practice called textual criticism big word that the big uh, term that essentially means there are faithful believers who are scouring the scriptures and who are scouring the original manuscripts to make sure that our Bible is the Bible that was presented and preserved from uh, from the apostles until now. And uh, many of you, if you're used to older versions, particularly the, the, the King James, there'll be a, a passage that typically reads, um, waiting for the moving of the water, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. And whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever offense he had. Now, you maybe you, you grew up with that. So, okay, where is it in, in this Bible? And so I want to address it very quickly. Uh, we don't have time to get into it. If you want more information, there are people way smarter than me who have written long papers on this, so I'd be happy to give to you, and you can read them. Um, but I'll give you a, a little bit of kind of background, and we're going to touch on this quite a bit when we get to John chapter 7 and 8. So when the King James was, was, was written, it's amazing what they did and what they had at their hands. They had very little... Uh, scriptural evidence or manuscripts that, 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 had, that were being used. And still it agrees uh, probably more than 97% of the time with the scriptures we have now with only minor variances. But what happened is the uh, King James Version was written off of the Textus Receptus. It was uh, Erasmus, a monk in that day, a Catholic monk. He, he took Latin texts. Erasmus is 16th century. He took 12th century Latin texts, translated them back into Greek, and, and then they used that as their, um, their, their, their basis for the King James Version. He had a handful of texts at the time. And still it's so close. But what has happened in archaeology in the past few hundred years is we've discovered over 5,000 manuscripts and, and, and fragments since then that give us a very clear picture of what the early church was, was reading. And this is incredible because what they were using was very limited and yet still agrees in many areas. But what we see with this particular passage is none of the early church fathers, none of the early manuscripts have this. Most likely, uh, and this is probably what, what has come to pass, is if you look at verse 7, um, the, 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 the man says, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water was stirred up, and while I'm going down the steps, uh, uh, another goes before me. So there was probably some superstitious uh, mystical belief at the time, and it was and, and it was passed down, and and most likely some scribe, and this happens, scribes will will, will try to fill in some information along the way. Could, is this true? Maybe. Is it not? I, my my thought is that it, it isn't. It isn't really consistent with how we see God working. But that's not the point. 
I don't want to distract you. Here's what I want you to, to, to know. That this does not change the purpose of the text. And there is no text in scripture that is essential to our faith that is affected by any textual criticism. End of story, you can believe your, your Bible. Because the great thing is that Christian scholars are more critical than any secular scholar out there. And they pour over every one of these manuscripts. And we want to make sure that we are holding ourselves to a high standard. So nothing doctrinal is affected here. And it doesn't change the purpose of our passage. So if you guys didn't know that, and I opened up a can of worms for you, I'm, I'm sorry, but now you know the answer to that. Because the real purpose of this is, it's not about the mystical that heals. It's not about some superstitious pool. It's about the power of Jesus who heals. That's the purpose of this. And Jesus' power to heal is more powerful than, than any natural means out there. And so that's what we need to walk away from. And so don't let that distract you. And I'm sorry if, if I did. I apologize. But I want you guys to know this. I want you to be equipped with this. Because there are a lot of people in culture who will say, well, look, at your, your version does this and this version does this. So yes, because our scholars are more concerned with being accurate than you are. And that's why this occurs. All right, so we covered that. Now verse 5. One man who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. 38 years. That's a long time to be laid there on the equivalent of a yoga mat. And hoping that someone brings you into this pool and hoping this mystical pond gets stirred up in the bubble, bubble, toil and trouble and you get to be the first one in there. For 38 years, he laid there. This is something that we normally pass through. John says there's a multitude of blind, lame, and paralyzed. This word in, in the Greek means dry. It's literally withered. They're just, there's, there's no liquid in, in, their, in their, their body. They can't move. And Jesus walks by all of them to this one man. We've been talking, we're in our study in, in Romans, and we just finished Romans 9 and 10, and we've been talking a lot about God's plan of redemption. We've been talking about election, which, which makes a lot of people uncomfortable. But we see that God is consistent throughout scriptures. Many people try to paint Jesus as this, this miraculous faith healer who went around and just healed everyone, brought everyone out of, out of poverty and created peace on earth. We don't see that in the Gospels. We see all these blind and, and, and lame, a multitude. Jesus knew this, this one man. I love what it says here in verse 6. When Jesus saw him lying there, and he knew that he had already been there a long time. Jesus knew him intimately. Jesus sought him out. This is what he does with the, the, the broken and the lame. Those who he knows, he seeks out. A lot of times this may shake your idea of who you think Jesus is, but he walked by a lot of people who had needs. And he walked to one man and he showed his favor on him. You know, this man was not deserving of it. He saw him and he knew him. Have you ever thought about that? That Jesus saw you and he knew you. In your sin, you were as helpless on the ground as that paralyzed man was. And he knew how long you've been struggling with what you've been struggling in. And he loved you. And he came to you and said, do you want to be healed? What an amazing Savior we have. That he would come to us and let that be a comfort to you. That he knows you the same way he knew this, this man. And he asked a very profound question. Do you want to be healed? I mean, it should be an obvious answer here. Of course you want to be healed. 
that I had to think about this week. Did he really want to be healed? This man was there for 38 years. Someone comes to him and says, do you want to be healed? Obviously, I think the reputation of Jesus was probably spread by then. But that's a real question. Because was his identity so wrapped up in his infirmity that he didn't want to be healed? I know people like this. I told you as many times I've done prison ministry where we're, we're told if you just give people all of the, uh, the uh, resources, they will be able to rehabilitate. You ever put, take someone out who've been, who's been institutionalized their entire life and put them in a home, give them a job, give them, give them food, give them transportation, and they go right back to crack? His identity was so wrapped up in his infirmity. This is a sensitive topic, but we have a large homeless population in, in, in Sanford. And, we, and people wonder, oh, if we just had more resources, if we had more this or that. If you talk to homeless people, and I'm not putting everyone in, 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 in a, in a um, I don't want to uh, stereotype everyone. I definitely do not want to do that. But I've talked to a lot of them quite often. Instead of giving them, them money, I want to find out what's going on. Like, can we actually help you? And the follow-up questions I always ask, well, do you have family in the area? Do you, do you have anyone who's, who's, who cares about you, anyone who misses you? Well, yeah, my mom lives over here. My aunt lives over here. I have someone over here. But they have too many rules. We don't, we don't really get along. They want me to be in by a certain time. They don't, they don't want me to smoke cigarettes. They don't want me to drink. Do you really want to be healed? This comes up over and over and, and over again. Seminole County has more resources than most of all other counties in Florida. But there are people whose identity is based in their infirmity. And we see this with this, this man here because when Jesus says, do you want to be healed? His answer should have been, yes, of course, more than anything, I want to be healed. I want to be made whole. But what does he say? The sick man answered him. He has, he has an excuse. Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. While I am going, another steps down before me. This is the state of mankind without Christ. Do you want to be healed? But I, I can't. It's someone else's fault. I can't get over here. I can't do this. Jesus knew this man. He knew his heart. He knew him and he showed mercy on him. Even though this man makes excuses, Jesus says to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. Jesus knew him and he had the authority to take something that was broken and make it whole. He had the authority to command what was impossible. And this is what we call the effectual call of, of, of Jesus. When he calls and when he works, it works for real. There's power in his voice and he is calling sinners to himself. And those he shows his mercy, they get up and walk. And anyone here who has encountered Christ, it's because he has called you and he has told you to take up your bed and walk. If you don't know Christ, that is the call to you. Do you want to be healed? Take up your bed and walk. Arise to new life. Be born again. Trust in me. And at that and at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. 
Uh, this word in the Greek, again, the English cannot do it justice. We translate it healed, but it is to be made whole. There's great theological symbolism here. Someone who is broken, someone who is infirm, who is paralyzed, is now made whole. He is healed. He's brought back together. He is, Jesus has healed what is broken. That was his entire ministry is about. To heal what is broken. To make whole what has been, what has been um, broken at the fall. And this term comes up a few more times as we walk forward. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and he walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. This is what kind of Bible scholars I want you to be. Look at this this verse. Just at first glance, look at what John focuses on. John focuses on that the man who had been healed in the first part of chapter 10... That's John's focus. This man had been healed. What is the focus of the Jews with the quotation marks? It is a Sabbath. It is not lawful. John saw the healing and the restoration. The Jews saw the law. The Jews were more concerned with their laws than the healing of this man. And this was a common sentiment. This word Jews here in, in, the, in the plural kind of points to those who were influenced by the religious teachers of the time. They're more concerned with their Sabbath observance than this man who had been lame for 38 years. At least, he was laying there for 38 years. So let's talk about the, the, the Sabbath for a moment. Why did this offend them so much? I'll tell you, because they didn't understand the Sabbath. What was the Sabbath? We, all, we should know this. This is Christianity 101. God created the earth in seven days. And he systematically created the earth to spin and, and to exist perfectly. And on the seventh day, he rested because God was tired and he overworked himself, right? Of course not. He rested from his creating work as an example to us that we don't need to work seven days. We can trust God in the seventh. Did God stop working? No. How do you think the world spins? How do you think the... The, the, the rain falls. How do you think the plants grow? How do you think there's breath in our lungs? God's creative work had stopped. But his work of preserving and sustaining continues. And his work of redemption began right after the curse was placed on the earth. The seeds of redemption were planted. So as Jesus is talking here, his work is going to continue the work of, of, of the Father. But for them, they had taken an Old Testament prohibition against working for gain, uh, working for your, your, your career, and made it, uh, made it so legalistic that even if you picked up a sheet of paper, it was considered a work. If you lit a, a, a lamp, you were, you, were, you were sinning. And Jesus touches on this so much. And we're going to get into those passages in, in just a moment. But... This is so ridiculous that God's Sabbath, which was made to be a blessing and a restful time for man, became this legalistic burden. That they were so blinded by their own laws that they couldn't see the work of God in their midst. And this is the wickedness of legalism. It adds this burden that distracts from the weightier matters of the law. What did Jesus tell us? My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Believe in me. To the Jews, there's don't work. Trust in us. 
to Jesus, I'm working. Trust in me. We'll get, see that in just a second. Verse 12. Oh, sorry, we're in verse 10. Uh, it is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, him, this is the man who was healed now. The man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. Again, John sees the healing. The Jews see the law. The healed man says, that man who healed me. He's more concerned about his new state than he is whether he broke one law or not. They asked him, see where their focus is here, in verse 12, who is the man who said you take up your bed and walk? They said, forget that healing stuff. Who told you to break our laws? They completely glossed over that this man was healed. Never even mentioned it. We don't know that they even thought about it. How obsessive is legalism? Forget that healing stuff. We say what's right. It is our laws that, that, that matter. So blind to the work of God. They didn't marvel that this man who had been laying on his side for 38 years is standing in front of them speaking to them. They were obsessed with him carrying his little mat. Are you kidding me? A broken man was just made whole and you're worried about a mat. How many times in churches have we said, yeah, 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 Jesus changed your life. Now stand up straight, cut your hair, dress this way, walk this way, do these things. Are you kidding? We've seen dead men come to life. We've seen those dead in our sins rejoice and call upon the name of the Lord. And we're more concerned with what they do on the outside. Anyone else get angry at that? I say we because we're all guilty of that and we've all seen it done. I don't want us to be those people. The man who had been healed did not know who it was. For Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, a couple things. So important, the details here. Where did he find him? In the temple. What was the temple for? Worship of God. This man was healed. He went right where he was supposed to go. He gave all glory to God. He went to the temple. He knew that this was a work of God. And the other detail that we can just gloss over, Jesus found him. All these people were here in Jerusalem. There's this feast going on. There's Jews everywhere. This is what our God does to his sheep. He seeks them out in the multitude. He calls them by name. He heals them. And then he seeks them. He finds them. He says, I'm concerned. Not just that you're made whole. Look at Jesus' words here. Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. See what has been done in your life. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The one he chose, he pursued, he found him and he cried out for his soul. Don't sin anymore. Sin no more. This in the, in the Greek, it says no longer continue to sin. He's talking about this man's way of life, not just some uh, moralistic expectations. He's not just calling him to have a physically new life, but a spiritually new life. Sin no more. Leave your old ways behind you. You have new physical life, but more importantly, you have new spiritual life. Sin no more that nothing worse would happen to you. He's laying helpless for 38 years. 
I mean, humanly speaking, what could be worse than that? I can tell you what can be worse than that. Better to be lame and pathetic on earth, forsaking sin and having citizenship in heaven, than to be whole physically and have citizenship in hell forever. It's not my words, it's Jesus's. Turn to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew 18, verse 7. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come. But woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands and two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with only one eye than have two eyes and be thrown into the hell of fire. Hell is worse than any any physical handicap. You can't tell it in our world these these days. Too often people are concerned with the, the external things. Well, they have all these things against them. So many people who have far less than we do, who have no problem rejoicing in the Lord, no problem thanking Him for everything that He has done. Let us be concerned first and foremost that our citizenship is in heaven and rejoice in what Christ has done in our lives. Verse 15. The man went away and he told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. The Jews were concerned with their man-made laws. He was concerned with being healed. The man rightly proclaimed his restoration. Jesus has made me whole. This should be our proclamation. Jesus has made me whole. Everyone who has ears to hear, Jesus has made me whole. This man went from faith in a pool to faith in a person. This man went from faith in a pool in some mystical puddle to faith in the person of Jesus Christ. That's a question I want you to just ponder on this week and, and, and take with you. Is there anything in your life that you're looking to to make you whole other than Jesus Christ? Is there anything that the world is teaching that is so tempting to you that you look to it for healing and wholeness other than, than Christ? Because I can tell you, As people who want to share the gospel, as people who want to share the good news of what Christ has done in our lives, those are the best gospel opportunities. Because when people are looking for healing and wholeness anywhere else than Jesus, we know where to point them. He is the one who heals. He is the one who saves. He is the one who makes the lame walk and the dead rise. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Because he was doing things on the Sabbath. Instead of seeking out the healer, instead of finding out what by what power does this man do this, and rejoicing in the work of God, they're 
America, they were so committed to their legalism. It is frightening. You have to blind your eyes. You have to squint so hard that you miss that a blame man is standing in front of you made whole. And hate the one who heals him. This is the reason why they were persecuting him. This is not just a one-time act. This is a continual angst. This is an attitude of anger toward Jesus, a lifestyle for them. Militant legalism turns into hatred and persecution. This is what we see with Islam all over the world. This is what we see with the Roman Catholic Church throughout history. Do not threaten our religious system or we will persecute you and we will suppress you because we are God. They hated Jesus because he broke their laws, not God's laws. Because our God is the God of righteousness and restoration. But legalism serves the God of self-righteousness and conformity. Our God is the God of healing and restoration. Legalism serves the God of self-righteousness and conformity. There is a big difference. And this is why the Jews were persecuting him, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. So I told you we'd look at what Jesus has to say about the Sabbath. Turn to Mark chapter 2. It's not the first time or the only time that this happens, where the Jews have a problem with Jesus and what he does on the Sabbath. But Jesus teaches us the real purpose of the Sabbath in Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 23. One Sabbath... He was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck the heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look. I imagine the Pharisees standing up and just scruffed up their eyebrows. Look, why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the, in the time of Abithar, the high priest, and he ate the bread of the presence which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. That is so key. Sabbath was made for man, not man for Sabbath. This is a Sabbath is a gift from God to us. Rest. Rest in me. Rest in my power. Rest in my provision. Rest in my healing. Don't make it a burden. It's a day of rest. They were so guilty of this. Look at Luke chapter 6. We get a parallel account here. Luke chapter 6, verse 6. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. They didn't care about the Sabbath. They hated Jesus so much that they were looking for any reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, just like he knew the thoughts of the man laying down. And he said to the, uh, and he said to the man with a withered hand, come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. Jesus said to him, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at all of them, he said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so when his hand was restored. 
Rejoice. Hallelujah, right? His hands restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Jesus came to do good. You call this a work that is offensive to God? You call me healing a man with a withered hand the same as you going to work on Sunday because you can't trust God from Monday to Saturday. That's the same thing. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath and they hated him for it. Jesus says do good. Legalism says stay in line. You know what it really is? Is that legalism fears the freedom that Christ offers. Legalism fears that God is more in control than they are. Legalism does not uh, trust God to convict his people. Legalism does not understand the work of the Holy Spirit. Because legalists must do God's job for him because God's not doing it good enough. And then here comes the dagger in verse 17. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I am working. My father and I. The work of the father ushering in the kingdom of heaven. My father's business, my father has been working and I am doing it now. And you who oppose me are opposing my father in heaven. God's work of redemption never takes a break. Jesus heals people seven days a week, 24 hours a day. Amen. But to the legalistic Jew, the Sabbath meant do nothing. To Jesus, the Sabbath meant do good work. Do the work of my father. Rejoice in the kingdom work that is happening. This is why, verse 18, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, But he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. When people say that Jesus never claimed to be God, they are completely ignorant of the Jewish understanding of the day. The Jews knew what this meant. When Jesus said, I am working and my father is working, they were outraged because they knew what that claim meant. There was no doubt in their minds he is calling himself equal with the father. This is a beautiful description of who Christ is. One in purpose with the Father, completely in line with the Father's plan, yet distinct. The Trinity is such a baffling doctrine, yet so simple. Our God is one, and our God is three. Don't take that to your math teachers, but that's, that's what it is. And God the Father... And God the Son are working out the eternal plan of redemption through the power of the Holy Spirit. Without division, without separation, without contradiction. In perfect harmony. And the Jews hated it. Because God was not their father. Jesus told them, your father is the devil. This is why they wanted to kill him. This is why they persecuted him all the way to the cross. Because if he's God, then they're not. Because he claimed to be God. He healed, he restored, he forgave sins, and he claimed perfect agreement with the Father. This is either amazing or the most blasphemous claim ever. And there is no in-between there. This is the ministry of God the Son. Teaching, healing, 
forgiving according to the will of the Father. We're going to get into this a lot more next week. This next section, we learn so much about how the Father and Son interact with each other. If you have questions about the Trinity, we'll see you next week. Um, So just a couple thoughts in conclusion here. Legalists are terrified of freedom. They're terrified that Christ offers life that is out of human control. That you actually have to trust in God that the work that he completed in you, he will complete in someone else. It's not easy to do. This is how the world at large sees the work of God. They see a miracle. They see a life change. They see something amazing. They say, who are you to do it different than we think you should? Who are you to claim this name of Jesus? We're in charge here. And it always leads to persecution. And I'll tell you, if you claim the name of Jesus, you call on the name of Jesus, the world will persecute you like it persecuted him. But here's the good news, brothers and sisters. Jesus is still working. Amen. The work that the father began, the son is continuing. Let us rejoice in his work, that he is still redeeming people. He is still healing the blind, the lame and the sick. He is still making what is broken whole. Let's not get caught up in trivial man-made expectations. But I don't want you to miss this. As believers, we are called to obey. We are called to know God's word and to follow it out of joy and rejoicing, not out of guilt and shame. We want to do it because we are obedient children, not because we need to be beaten down into submission by those who think they know better than us. Let us be rejoyful. Let's be joyful, obedient children. And let us be people who know that who know the son of God. And we rejoice that he is working and we get to be part of his work. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your power of restoration. Thank you that every one of us who knows you is just like that man there. We were helpless and broken. You called us and made us whole. Help us to rest in you, find our wholeness in you. Help us to find our Sabbath in you. We want to rest in you and do good and live according to your word. Because we love you. Because you first loved us. Lord, help us not to make our own laws and make our own religion to make people into our image. Help us be faithful to your word. Be about your work as you have called us to do and give you all the glory and all the praise because it is only you and it is only in the name of our Lord, in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, that anyone can be saved. And there is no other power in heaven and earth that can restore. And Lord, we praise you because of this and we praise you because one day you will restore all things and bring them back to their perfect order. And we anxiously wait for the consummation of all things because you who started it will be faithful to complete it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.